0: At the end of the day, the point is that like corporations and governments will be forced to adopt Bitcoin because of its hard money qualities and the way that it increases in value over time. And whether they like it or not, they're promoting this tool of freedom for everybody else. So it's this sort of like catch 22 thing. And it's something that I don't think any other freedom technology really has. Like literally forces people to be human rights activists, even if they hate human rights. You may not be interested in promoting human rights, but Bitcoin is interested in making you promote human rights.
1: This is the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast, a show where average Joe firefighters explore the most important monetary technology of the 21st century. We talk Bitcoin, we talk finance, and we talk shit. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to this week's release of the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast. In this episode, Josh and myself, Dan, are privileged to be joined by Alex Gladstein. Plain and simple, if you study Bitcoin, you know Alex. Alex Gladstein is the chief strategy officer at the Human Rights Foundation. His writings and views on human rights and technology have appeared on tons of major media outlets across the world, including BBC, CNN, The Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, and the list could go on. Since 2017, he's been obsessed with Bitcoin. He co-authored The Little Bitcoin Book in 2019, and this year he's been putting out a downright incredible article series at Bitcoin Magazine. Josh and I simply cannot get enough of Alex's writing. In this particular episode, we cover why Bitcoin is a dream for human rights activists, Bitcoin is a Trojan horse for freedom, the cypherpunks and founding fathers of America, the fourth turning, Bitcoin ETFs, and more. All of Alex's material and items mentioned in the show will be linked in the notes, and you can follow him on Twitter at Gladstein. If you want to support our show, that can be accomplished in a few different ways. Check out the support section down in the show notes. Follow us on Twitter at Blue underscore Collar Subscribe, rate, and review on whatever app you're using for podcasts. And most exciting, we are now live for podcast 2.0 Bitcoin SAT streaming. You can stream us fractions of a cent while listening just because you can. This is an awesome way to interact with the Lightning Network and the decentralized digital future we are moving toward. We have instructions down in the show notes, and I shit you not, it is very easy to get a handle on. Alrighty then. Sit back, relax, grab a coffee or a beer if you're not driving, and enjoy this conversation with Alex Gladstein. All views and language expressed by the hosts and guests in this podcast are solely their personal opinions and do not reflect their employers or organizations they are associated with. Do not treat any of the content in this podcast as investment advice or as an inducement to follow a particular strategy. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Alex Gladstein, privileged to have you on the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast.
0: Thanks for the opportunity.
1: We've been joking as we've been just inhaling all of your work. That we don't know how this is possible, that you're putting out this amount of content. we have this working theory that you're like one of three identical triplets that all just work on writing robust and profound Bitcoin articles. How in the world are you cranking all this stuff out right now?
0: I uh, appreciate that. Um, I'm not sure it's uh, a combination of things. I'm just very deeply inspired, and I I get in the zone and I make it a priority to do the research and do the interviews and, and get the articles done. Um, some, a couple of them were, were, were things I'd worked on last year, but yeah, most of them were just spun out a whole cloth uh, in the matter of a few weeks. So I'm very happy about the, the work I put out and uh, I intend to put it into a, a book actually that bitcoin magazine will help me publish so all the stuff i've done uh, in the last six months we're going to try and put into a book uh which will probably be called check your financial privilege and we'll we'll get that out there which i think will be helpful for some folks um it's hard i'm not going to lie to get the uh, motivation time um with all the other stuff going on Uh, i have a full-time job and family and stuff and it's uh yeah you gotta just kind of carve out minutes of the day um and yeah. priori- and prioritize it, but i it's pretty exhilarating to be able to do it and um these top- these topics to me are very important and um hey they they make an impact, so we'll see obviously i reached reached you guys uh I can't and either. uh i <laughs> reached reached a few people doing it, so I think I'll keep trying. We'll see
2: they're long but there, I mean, there's never a time when I'm reading one of your articles where I'm just like, man, this is filler. Like, this is, like, it's all very succinct, well thought out. I
0: appreciate that.
2: Yeah, thank you for doing that. I always enjoy those, the new ones and spend an hour or so reading that.
0: I leave a lot on the cutting room floor, so I'll often just, like, cut an entire, I'm like, how do I delete 3,000 words out of this manuscript? Painful, Um, I'm sure. Yeah, you gotta kill your darlings. It's it's true, but less so but i do i do want to make sure that every sentence counts like basically like if a paragraph is like not exciting i'm just going to delete it um or if it's not meaningful to me um then it should just be deleted so we'll see uh i think twitter also helps um i realized after i think i wrote my article on the petrodollar that uh, cuz i like shared the article and i just felt like it didn't get quite out there. So then I did a thread on it and that one went really crazy. So ever since I've just been doing a long thread every time I release it and it, it gets much more attention that people just like threads, it is what it is. But threads take like, not as much time as the article, but they they take a long time yeah. to do a long
1: thread. Figure out how to synthesize those down in, yeah.
0: And what's interesting is like, uh, whenever I'm doing the thread, I'm becoming more concise. Like I'm looking at these sentences that, and I'm realizing that like, <laughs> Twitter is really good because it forces you to like re architect the sentence in a way that's most concise and powerful. Yeah. And really, what you should be doing is take well, I should be taking every paragraph in all of my essays and just trying to fit it in a 280 uh, character.
1: Tweet. <laughs> yeah, just so you can transpose <laughs> then, it right in.
0: Yeah, and then like whatever doesn't fit into the tweet doesn't matter. Like, so I've been I've been noticing that lately. But you know what? In a long it, when you're writing prose, it's it, yeah. you know, it's okay to have a little more meat. That would bone. be like a
2: 500-thread tweet if, uh, if you tent- sent one of your articles into the tweet form.
0: Yeah, I mean, I... Yeah, the one I just released, I think, was 8,000 words on the Cypherpunks, and the thread is 83 tweets. So, I mean, that's probably... You do the math, but probably probably close yeah. to twenty percent of the article is is in the tweets. <laughs>
1: we wanna get into that one a little bit later. Love we it. we're overwhelmed, Alex. We don't know where to start. I was thinking about just today and, and recording with you. I was working with somebody mm-hmm. at, at the firehouse yesterday, and this is a sure. person that we've convinced to to buy some Bitcoin. So they have a what I would consider a meaningful position. And I was explaining that we're talking to the someone at the Human Rights Foundation and, and mm-hmm. literally his response was what does that have to do with Bitcoin? And it kind of got me thinking, I'm sure this is something you've heard over and over again, but I was on a walk this morning kind of pondering my journey. And I know Josh can identify with this. And I think for me, there's sort of been four steps in my Bitcoin journey. Step Mm -hmm. one was just Bitcoin catching my eye. It's shiny, it's fascinating. Then step two for me was this realization that this could be a life-changing investment opportunity just to enhance the prosperity of, of me and my immediate family. Then there was sort of this step 3 where I expanded beyond my inner circle to more of the demographic and and people group that I identify with and for us that's the American middle class like so we launched this podcast with this passion to to spread our conviction about the technology and and how this network can create a mechanical advantage for a middle class that's sort of up against the wall in the backdrop and then I think there's step 4 which is this realization that this is a monetary network for the entire world, first through third, and that those that need it the most are really the ones that are cut off from the current financial rails and smothered by despotic regimes and governments. And you really, you are the one that took me to step four. And I think one of our goals today, as much as we want to dive deep with you and we have tons of specific questions, I don't think we can leave this episode without introducing and explaining this concept to those who haven't gotten to this step. So just as a starter, really broad, Mm -hmm. why in the world is someone like you at the Human Rights Foundation obsessed with Bitcoin and spending this much time on it?
0: Great question. Uh, The simple answer would be because money is broken around the world for billions of people and the current legacy fiat financial system sucks and it's exclusionary and it's- amen discriminatory and it's Hallelujah. inefficient and it's dinosaur technology and you know we can send an image or an email uh, seamlessly re- relatively permissionlessly with a swipe on our phone why can't we send money the same way you know it's, it's really you know it comes down to that yeah that's that's sort of half of it right um why can't we use money like we use information um the other half relates to your time and your energy, and your ability to preserve your purchasing power, right? So on the one hand, we have this idea of like digital cash, and can't we just pay somebody? Like, why is that hard? Like, why can't you pay somebody in some other country? Like, what, why do I have to go through all these steps? I can just pay them immediately. And you can do that now with lightning. Like, we've made it. We're like there. We've made it, okay? The, the second revolution in Bitcoin is the way that it, it preserves value for you, your family, your company, your community, whatever, uh, over time. And I, I think that maybe in a hundred years, it'll be, it'll be different and store of value will be accurate, but it's not accurate to describe Bitcoin as a store of value. It's an, it's, right now, it's a dramatic appreciator of value. It's very different. Store of value would mean that <laughs> you're like roughly able to buy the same amount of goods and services right, with, with your output over time. That's just not true for Bitcoin. Like over the last ten, five, ten years, like the same amount of energy that you put in to earn a certain amount of Satoshis, um, you know, would but, uh, originally bought you like half of a, you know, PS3 and then like a certain number of PS4s. And then whenever, you know, now PS5, it's like 100 PS5s or whatever. So that's
2: that's such a good way to reframe it. I mean, it's an appreciator.
0: <laughs> yeah, like you. you <laughs> <laughs> Again, you used to be able to buy, like, a bicycle, and then you could buy a car, and now you can buy, like, an aircraft carrier with the, the, the amount of Bitcoin that, that <laughs> yeah. you, you, you earned, like, s- I don't know, selling concert tickets in 2010. Like, it's, like, it's insane. So, we'll see, but I think that's the digital gold part. Um, although it's obviously what I'm saying is it's much more vivid than digital gold. But the, the idea is that the cool part is it marries these two needs that humans have of like just paying each other and doing business really fast uh, anywhere in the world without any borders or walls. Um, and then it can like preserve our value and it's good money. And that's to me, what's going to really be interesting to watch across any class America, but you know, especially middle-class America is like the fact that all these um, Things that we need that are utility for us are inflated um, in value because our money sucks. So, like the house you live in is inflated in dollar terms because our money's bad. So people use houses as as store of value. Like, right. Once we have good money, the amount of value in homes will it will. I mean, homes will always have a utility. Of course, they'll always be valuable. But th- they're going to leak a lot of that value back into Bitcoin over the coming decades because Bitcoin's better at being a store of value than a house. Yeah. So um, you're going to see like just vast leakage of value from gold. First and foremost, we're going after gold, and then real estate, um, and then neg- and then government bonds. Right. So these three things alone, like forget equities or whatever, just these three things. I mean, gold's 10, gold's 10, uh, real estate, I don't know, is what, 30 to 40 in the U S may- maybe more government bonds are similar. I mean, yeah, let's just say it's, this is why it's, this is why that guy's freaking handles hundred trillion, right? <laughs> like, like yeah, That's basically the addressable market for these three things, gold and real estate and bonds. Like, so these three things are inefficient right now. They're, they're overinflated because they're serving a store of value. like. But at the end of the day, a house is like, it's a pain in the ass to use a house of a store of value. It's like hard to sell, it could take months, you get a lawsuit, like God knows what, like there's all sorts of stuff involved with like, the house is just like, not liquid, right? Um, and Bitcoin is, is instantly liquid anywhere in the world, right, so yeah, I think that um, now, okay, you know, a million dollars of Bitcoin, it's still pretty liquid, still pretty liquid. I mean, it's not as liquid as $10 of Bitcoin, but it's still pretty liquid, right? Um, and we're getting closer to that reality where like, we're just gonna annihilate all these things that, that people have used as store of values because our money has sucked. Uh, Lynn Alden is actually the person who, she mentioned this to me and I thought it was a, just a brilliant insight. Like very simply, um, you know, if our money's good, then these store of value things will come down in price like re- relative to goods and services yeah so i think that that's going to be a massive shift in the landscape of like uh, of of middle class america like again like anything that people use for savings or whatever outside of bitcoin is just going to come down and going to be, become more affordable i mean I, i'm very into this vision of like bitcoin being a world of abundance not scarcity it's like counterintuitive like bitcoin is is scarce yes but that does not mean that the world that it will create is scarce and brutal and yeah. apocalyptic. No, 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 no. It's going to be an abundant world of prosperity. That's at least what, what, what I believe will happen.
2: There was a tweet that we sent out yesterday. It was when money is scarce, things are abundant. When money is abundant, things are scarce. And I don't remember who said that, but that kind of nails it right on the head with what's going on right now. Money is getting printed into oblivion and things are scarce and yeah. supply chains break down and the opposite will make everyone flourish.
0: Yeah, I mean, so you have this remarkable technology that is now accessible to anybody, and that's just a revolution. I mean, the fact that I can use the Lightning Network to pay anybody who has a smartphone anywhere in the world in a second, the fact that they could choose to store that value um, vis-a-vis their fiat currency, which is probably collapsing um, rather quickly, you know, compared to ours. Um, it, everybody needs it I mean if everybody not I mean human rights activists are just a small subset of people who need this thing uh, a lot of people regardless of their political opinions have trouble with their bank like they have trouble with their currency it's hard to find something to invest in that can store value over time like these are all just like problems people have around the world and they are oftentimes not discussed too much because it's just like oh that's the reality it's like the way money works well you know, now we have like a paradigm shift. So, um, but especially for the human rights movement, it's just massive. I mean, now we don't have to deal with as much, um, selective censorship, blacklisting, like deplatforming, all the stuff that, that governments do to their people all over the world. Uh, people can fight back peacefully. So that's why I think it's a big deal.
1: Explore for us briefly for, for member of the audience. That's just, this is off their radar. What the implications of the current. Global monetary system are for billions of people that aren't connected to all the rails we are. Give us a thousand foot view and explain to somebody the dysfunction there and then how Bitcoin enters to
0: fix that. Sure. Okay. I'll give you three examples. So one would be in Russia, uh, you know, obviously world power, very industrialized country, but one that has fallen under the rule of a dictator named Vladimir Putin. Um, And he's passed a whole bunch of laws to make it, like, very difficult to, like, oppose him, right? So one of those laws relates to, like, foreign funding. So if you're, like, a human rights organization or an environmental group or a labor union group or, you know, any sort of, like, basic sort of progressive cause, uh, it is illegal for you to receive foreign funding, right? And they, like, monitor your bank accounts to make sure that it doesn't happen. So, I mean, it gets so bad that, like, I know activists who... Like I know one particular activist and she had to (laughs) like to go to one of our programs, she had to like go to an embassy to get a visa to come in, in like a different country. I think she had to go to the US embassy in like Poland or something to get her visa for whatever reason. Okay. So she goes, she does that. So we had to like pay her back. So basically the pre-Bitcoin solution was like, when I come to America, you have to give me like $800 in cash and then I will like carry that back to Russia. Crazy literally the solution. I know people who've sewed money into their clothing uh, and flown back to their countries just simply because they're afraid of sending a bank wire that it'll get confiscated. Well, it has a very high likelihood of getting confiscated or in the case of a Russian definitely will get confiscated. So you look at Bitcoin and it's just like, wow, like now, I mean, it's not even like an issue anymore. Now it's just like, oh, I can just send Bitcoin to their non-custodial, non-KYC wallet. And They can do whatever they want with it. It's just boom, instant. So, like the upgrade from like smuggling cash in via bags or sewed into your clothes or in a briefcase to support a human rights movement or an environmental group or a labor union in one of these countries like Russia. I mean, this is just. That's a huge uh, upgrade. It's just a massive upgrade. (laughs) Uh, Second thing would be like somebody who lives behind like a sanctioned country, right? So, I'm talking about somebody who lives in like Palestine or Iran or Cuba, right? So, these are people who are good people they are being punished because of their rulers who are evil more or less but 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 you know the US government tries to punish the rulers by imposing like some sort of embargo or sanction or whatever unfortunately that ends up like hurting the average person which is why i think broad sanctions are pretty immoral and smart sanctions are good but like that are targeted at in individuals but but not not broad ones so what what, what people end up doing is like Like, if your family's in Iran or in Cuba, like, literally, it's like impossible for you as an American to use the financial system to send them money. So, what do you do? Okay. You could use like a Hawala system, which is basically like you trust some guy who knows some guy on the other side. You pay this person in cash in whether it's Toronto or Chicago or whatever. And then, and then your family goes to the guy's friend and receives a smaller amount of cash on the other end.
1: 5th century a, lightning network, it sounds yeah.
0: like. <laughs> no, this is the ancient Hawala system, right? That's a Hawala node. And this is the case in Latin America or Asia or whatever. So that's, that's like literally what you're reduced to is having to trust these two guys. Either one could steal your money. Stuff could happen. You know, God knows what. <laughs> it's like you literally can't use the banking system in this case. And you, people are desperate. I mean, I spoke to you know, they have family, they need to get medicine into these countries, like medicine gets blocked. Like it's it's tough. It's tough out there, it's tough times. So Bitcoin comes in and fixes this like just immediately. Like now, again, now you're you you just directly connect and transact with your family and get them what they need, regardless of whatever embargo or sanction or whatever. It's just not relevant anymore. Um super draconian controls on on populations, which are really harmful. Um so those would be like two, I would say pretty clear, uh, use cases. A third one, um, I'll just throw out cause I think it's, it's intriguing. Um, one of the first Bitcoin and human rights people I ever met is this woman named Roya from Afghanistan. I met her years ago. Um, and for the first couple of years I knew her, I didn't know she was into Bitcoin. I just like never even figured to ask. Um, but she's like uh one of the first female tech CEOs in Afghanistan and has a, an amazing story actually. But basically at the end of the amazing day, amazing article you wrote with her thanks. Kind of at the forefront. Yeah. Yeah. Again, I, I've had the pleasure of knowing Roya for a long time and it was awesome to have her at the Bitcoin Academy a couple of weeks ago in Miami talking about her her story. We're gonna post that video soon. It was it was really good. Um, but yeah, I mean, look, at the end of the day, she ran a company in a conservative society. Women worked for her. Like she wanted to pay them. This was like 2013. So that like a lot of the women didn't have bank accounts for whatever reason. Um, The the brothers and uncles and husbands like would just like take cash if they brought it home. But they all had phones like, right. So she would, one of her business partners was like, hey, we should use Bitcoin. And she was like, what's that? And then she eventually figured it out. And starting in like spring of 2013 bitcoin was like 80 bucks or something she uh she started paying her workers in in bitcoin and then they would like keep it and save it on their phone and that gave them that this the sense of financial freedom and then whenever they needed to buy something her sister started a little business where her she would buy the bitcoin back and give them the uh local currency so they did this for several years um now uh it got a huge You know, it was it was looking really great for them, right, for that first year (laughs) uh, till the end of the year. I mean, Bitcoin went from like eighty bucks to like a thousand to like eleven hundred or something like that. But then it started to crash. I mean, as we all know, massive multi-year bull market went all the way down to like two hundred something dollars. um And you know, Roya had to like make everybody whole. She had to offer to, to pay them the dollar amount or the Afghani amount of whatever you know they had earned. But um, yeah, some of the women decided to keep some of the Bitcoin or keep all of it. They're just really intrigued by it. And look, some of them used it to escape, start a new life somewhere else. Some of them, you know, in a way that the you can't just like take money. I mean, you, you know, you, you can't just like, oh, hi, I want all my money out of this bank account right now. Usually when you're escaping a country, it's like not during yeah. nine to five business hours on like a Tuesday <laughs> yeah. No, or there's like this long line of people. No, fuck that. So leaving a country
1: with 24 words in your head sounds quite a bit easier. than Yeah.
0: That. And I don't, you know, I don't think that this person like memorized the words, but you know, she had, she had her seed, she had her backup and she got out of there. And you know, there's different examples. One is a woman went to Germany through like the whole underground railroad through Iran and Turkey and through the Mediterranean sea and made it to Germany. And Funded her new life, and then Roya's sister, who was also at the event the other day, she just saved up and held from thirteen to eighteen and they used it to finance her education at Cornell, you know incredible super, awesome. super badass so um yeah, I, I think those are three pretty good stories showing how this thing is is for real. I think that there's a lot of other stories, obviously, as you know, that I have, but I, I think those are pretty good to start with um but look, I mean, for you, if, if we're talking like the average American family, it's, I think it's more, it's more about like empowerment and how you and your family can like preserve the time and effort that you're spending at work um, for future generations. I, I think that's really what, what's the, the most important thing. Like maybe you have family abroad, in which case this is really cool because it allows you to connect with them um, and you don't have to deal with like Western Union or whatever. Um, maybe you're in a biz, you run a side business where you don't want to deal with the banks. This makes it pretty cool. Um, maybe you don't like the surveillance state and you want to be able to buy stuff on the internet with like the minimal KYC and you don't want like data brokers selling your stuff. Okay. You can use lightning to buy gift cards and buy all kinds of stuff and you can, you can order stuff. I mean, you can use lightning to, if you're worried about the surveillance state, you can use lightning to buy an Amazon gift card and have it you could pick it up at a, at a whole at a whole foods, you know, like there, there's stuff you can do, like if you really care. Um, but at the end of the day, I think the primary use case is going to be thinking about this as like, Hey, this is like the stack for your family for the next 20, 30 years. Like you're building the yeah. stack
2: generational now. wealth. now
0: and the stack that you can build now is like, I mean, this is a one-time thing. It's not gonna happen again. Like we're not gonna have another Bitcoin in 10 years. Like, so it's like, yeah. you got one shot to build your stack now um because it'll be a lot harder to you won't be able to stack this no one will be able to stack what they can stack today in 10 20 years it's just not possible so no matter how much wealth you have or whatever um if you can stack for example a dollar a day now whatever it six seventeen hundred. 1700 what we i don't know it's like do we fall below 1700 It's like 1700 sats per dollar um I don't think you'll be stacking 1700 sat 17 sats per day in a decade. That's probably not going to happen. <laughs> yeah, That's yeah, probably going to be yeah. way beyond your means. So stack yeah. the 1700 sats per day or week while you can, cause you won't be able to in 10 years. Like you're you, especially when we get like God, like 20, 30 years from now. I mean, who knows, man? Yeah. Yeah. Like, so it's all about your stack and just like, you know, turning your effort and energy into something that can provide for your family and, and for future generations in a way that, that that actually is honest and noble and takes care, you know, and, and is not being like, you know, leaked out and, you know, rent, rent sought by all kinds of middlemen and other people. You know, the way that our society has worked in the last hundred years really has just been like an increasing ever since the 40s really is just like an increasing amount of wealth going to a small group of people um, at the expense of others. And uh, that won't, you know, that, that's just sort of the way of human nature. But like th- this really gives us a mechanism to fight back a little bit against that in a, in, in a significant way.
1: How many yeah. other human rights activists are starting to see? Th- I mean, you just finished with the Oslo Freedom Forum. Sure. And obviously it, it, it appears to us from the outside that you're pretty much dedicating... The majority if not all of your time and energy into bitcoin is that an accurate representation
0: uh i mean all my free time i mean i have a full-time job at the human rights foundation where i have a team of people and we're working on growing our mission and that's what i spend like a lot of my day doing but yeah all my free time i like i'm usually involved with bitcoin stuff yes Yes. how many other activists
1: are starting to like where are we at in in human rights activism with an understanding of what this technology unlocks for the disenfranchised.
0: I think we're no better than the world average, which I think is about two, whatever, wow. two, maybe 3% of the world. I so really would have maybe. thought it would
2: be more than that, just no, considering not, the world you guys are in.
0: It's really not. It's crazy. I don't know what to tell you. Like Amnesty or Amnesty International, I don't think they've issued a single statement about Bitcoin ever. Like it just wow. shows you where we are. Yeah, Interesting yeah well look and i I touched on this in the cypherpunk piece but like for whatever reason the privacy community has really been hostile to bitcoin Mm. the sort of digital security community digital privacy community they just they've just not they've been very hostile to it now this is this is going to change and i think that snowden is a really good um signal for this like you're watching even in the last six months. I mean, if you just read what he's writing, like he's yeah. starting to get it. That-
2: I, I have always been surprised how little it seemed like he grasped Bitcoin considering his, you know, his computer background and all that. Like I, I thought- No,
0: but it's, it's understandable and intuitive. Like because your priority is the surveillance state and privacy, it would make like, you don't really care as much about the, um, all the, like all the other things that go into Bitcoin, like, like when it was engineered, why did Satoshi make it so that privacy wasn't the number one engineering priority? And you're looking at that probably and you're like, well, this is clearly inadequate. Let's build a more private version of Bitcoin. And this is you know, not coming from a, a bad faith place. This is coming from a good faith place, right? Yeah. The problem is that's not how it works. Okay, to create a good money, it has to be auditable and there has to be a fixed supply. Yeah. Or at least a predictable issuance. There can't be some group of rent seekers changing right. the amount. The of economics money that has to come first. But that is not an intuitive conclusion mm. at all. That yeah. took the, that took the cypherpunks like decades to figure out. Like hmm. it wasn't clear. I mean, when David Chom made eCash, like it would be whatever it was, like they could make as much of it as they wanted to. But ultimately, that was its demise. Was that it was a centralized corporation, and guess who was working for? DigiCash, Nick Sabo. Okay. Yeah. So Nick Sabo's working there and he's like, oh shit, this thing collapsed. Maybe we should try to make a different kind of asset that, that humans can't just make more of. So, you know, he had what? his big, Bitco- he has big gold idea. And then from there, it wasn't cited in the white paper, but Satoshi did write that big gold was a major influence. And, and you can, you can, this is super clear because eventually like Bitcoin was released not during the Snowden revelations, it was released during the great financial crisis as a result of it. So it's like, once you realize that the main issue is the money printer and like control over the money printing, okay, then, then it starts to change your opinion about, about Bitcoin and why Bitcoin. And I think Snowden's going through that right now. I mean, he just wrote a massive article like four days ago on basically the Cantillon effect. dang i I read that
2: actually that was phenomenal
0: he's really coming around i I don't think he used the word candle on effect but he he, that's what he wrote about and and it wasn't even really about bitcoin it was just like it was a complaint about the mint the coin movement and you know once you once you realize that like that's the real issue in money like sort sort of the the most fundamental problem with money is the way that the powers that be exploit it for their own purposes at the expense of everybody else yeah then you realize what a powerful thing bitcoin is and then then we can work together to make bitcoin more private like bitcoin is getting there like it's like most of the art most of the like lightning is digital cash and you know what the vulnerabilities and privacy and lightning are fixable they're not they're not terminal like they're they're arguably you could you can fix most of them at the wallet level over the next year and I mean, I, people are doing extraordinary work to make Lightning more more usable. I mean, even some of the like halfway steps. Like right now, you like use a KYC service like Cash App to buy your Bitcoin and then like, or Paxful, and then like you move it to, to a Moon wallet. Like, guess what happens when you, <laughs> when you, you, you lightning that, that money now to, to another Lightning wallet? It's a submarine swap. It's not like the other person even knows yeah. where the UTXO, so, like,
1: yeah. th-
0: there's no way. Now, Moon might be able to, um, docks you, which is why, which is why they're trying, they're moving on to a different model. But like, once you actually start looking at how these wallets work, like you could start really seeing that the privacy is close. Like we're, we're very close, we're very close.
1: Yeah. From your piece, Bitcoin is a Trojan horse for freedom, which is in contention for my favorite. Josh and I have been debating that Thanks. you, you <laughs> threw a monkey wrench in with this most recent one because that, God, man, is it good? We're going to get into that next, hopefully. But you, I, I know you, talked, you touched some on this sort of privacy bait and switch. I think you mentioned like cross input sig or SIGAG in there. We just mm-hmm. had the taproot upgrade. Lightning yep. work, Network adds all this privacy. I think this is one of the things that we're most awestruck by with Bitcoin. Is just you, you regulate its current form and shape or you think you understand and have a handle on its current form and shape and then it just changes shape and form. That's one aspect of the Trojan horse. The other that you get into, which I, I kind of want to tee you off here and let you hit the, hit the driver, is just this people are enamored with the store value characteristics or the, the number go up characteristics that you highlighted. But as this adoption grows and as innovation increases on the network, it just makes the protocol more robust and in a lot of ways more inclusionary. Walk us through what you mean by Bitcoin being a Trojan horse for freedom.
0: Yeah, so I think you're seeing it now, right? So there's going to be like an ETF, right? So um, Wall Street is realizing that there's a lot of demand for exposure to the Bitcoin price, and now they're pushing Washington to allow um, a, 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 a you know an ETF that Americans can invest uh, retirement savings into where. Part of it can be exposed to Bitcoin. Um, And I think that that is driven by pure self-interest by all the parties involved. Like, like, you know, the ETF people want deal flow. Um, The future retirees want exposure to an asset that's rising in price. There's nothing altruistic about this endeavor. Uh, The asset itself will be totally because i mean it's not bitcoin it's it's like a promise to pay bitcoin maybe in the future so like nothing to do with freedom at all right but here's the part that's cool so to create such a thing uh most likely down the road someone's gonna have to buy some bitcoin right yep whether it be through a contract or the actual spot okay (laughs) and that's gonna drive over time, the price up, the adoption, the network effects okay of this tool, so even this like super super like wall street like uh version of Bitcoin, which is totally captured, centralized you know tradfi Bitcoin, yeah, not exciting, even this is like boosting the overall network value and and the adoption um and they can't stop it and they're not going to stop it because it's not in their interest to stop it so i mean that's just like one example out of many but at the end of the day the point is that like corporations and governments will be forced to adopt bitcoin because of its hard money qualities and the way that it increases in value over time and whether they like it or not they're 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 promoting this tool of freedom for everybody else so it's this sort of like catch 22 thing and it's something that I don't think any other freedom technology really has. Like like it, it literally forces people to be human rights activists, even if they hate human rights. It's fascinating. <laughs> so so that's, well that's that's why I think it's cool. Yeah. So yeah. That's, that's the TLDR.
2: You may not be interested in Bitcoin, but Bitcoin is interested
0: in you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, or, you, you know, you may not be interested in promoting human rights, but Bitcoin is interested in making you promote human rights. Exactly. Would be, would be the way to put it. Yeah. So.
2: Um, I kind of did a, a shitload of your reading your material and a couple of them that popped out at me. kind of go just your most recent one, The Quest for Digital Money, and then mm-hmm. reading that side by side with Bitcoin and The American Idea. Mm-hmm. The parallels between the founding people in Bitcoin and this whole uh, cryptography movement back in the 70s, 80s, 90s, and then up till today with the American founders is kind of profound to me. I wonder if you've had ideas kind of with that or how do you see that parallel between those founding parties
0: i mean yeah you could go very deep there i think that the cypherpunks believed in the same values that the founding fathers did more or less obviously i get into that in the the article about independence day and why it did not it did not deliver what it promised for, for many americans Um, but ultimately, if you want to be charitable, you look at Jefferson and what he stood for, uh, or even Adams. I mean, you look at these people and you look at what they stood for and it was essentially like whatever the opposite of what's going on in England, right? Like we want like rights. We want a balance of power. We want the ability to criticize the government. We want to have a fair court system. All these things. We want checks and balances. We want states rights. We want individual sovereignty. We want property rights. We want like whatever the, whatever the king would not want. We want over here. Right. Okay. Now you're looking at the cypherpunks and their enemy is not the king of England, but the, their, their enemy, their enemy is really the U S government's growing surveillance state. And they're like, all right, well, like what, what, what do we want in this new cyberspace so that, you know, the founding fathers were settling the America cypherpunks are settling cybers- cyberspace, and they're like, what you know, what are we going to build here? So, basically, like whatever, whatever is the opposite of what the surveillance state wants. So, again, privacy, free speech, and really electronic cash was like the holy grail of what they were working on. Right? Like, yeah, it was sort of evident even from the beginning of when the actual cyberpunks started meeting up in San Francisco that like e- electronic money was. If you read Eric Hughes' article or his little manifesto, it's like talks about money right so money was always like part of it right so yeah i think that in a world of monsters um both of these groups of people tried to make a better future for the people they cared about i, I think it's a strong parallel um and both incredibly noble maybe not the indiv- again maybe not the individuals okay uh i mean the founding fathers slave owners all kinds of stuff uh so we need to separate the ideal from the man right Sa- same thing with the cypherpunks. some of those people had some crazy ideas That's fine okay i mean it is what it is but what they created was a tool that benefited a lot of people right okay the bill of rights um declaration of independence these are timeless things yeah public key cryptography incredible changed the balance of power between the individual and the state forever you know pgp the Bitcoin white paper. I mean, these are incredible documents. So yeah, I think you can draw a lot of parallels there. And, um, it really ends up just boiling down to the fact that I think that like Bitcoin just kind of like has this weird way, but it it just sort of, I think it'll just sort of make government more honest, um, long-term. Like it just just empowers the people a little bit more prevents the government from doing it's like worst excesses. And, um, I mean, this is, this is very speculative because we're just at the outset of this thing, but it's, it's crazy. You no, know, I was on a panel the other day in Texas at, at, at UT Austin, uh, with, um, Congressman Warren Davidson and, uh, from Ohio. And, um, he's on stage with me and we're being interviewed. And he's telling the audience to go to what the fuck happened in 1971.com or whatever. And I'm like, <laughs> that's awesome. I'm like, what
1: in the world? Wow. Yeah.
0: I'm like, that's a sitting US congressman telling the public that, that, that they should check out this website. I think that was um, at least verbally a first. I think Loomis had tweeted something about it earlier. But She's thanking God for Bitcoin. Yeah. But I mean, but so you, you got these politicians and they're like, they really believe that. Um, and I think they're growing. They're going to grow. I mean, you've got. A diverse group of them coming out now. I mean, just wait for the next year or two to happen. Uh, more and more people from different backgrounds, right? Totally different backgrounds. I mean, you've got Warren Davidson and Cynthia Loomis, but then you've got people like Erica Rhodes, right? There's like different kinds of people who are in politics who view the who view Bitcoin as an important tool for their constituents, right? And who don't think the US government should be banning it or restricting it, right? That's pretty powerful. And I think it's quite profoundly American. So that's why I was excited to write that um, Fourth of July piece and yeah, I think there are definitely parallels with, the, let's say, the, the, the founding fathers of Bitcoin.
1: Did you sit down one-on-one with Adam Back for the Quest for Digital Cash article, or was that all just research? Like, what, how did you, he was, he kind of centered in that. How did you do some of that research?
0: No, I I, I mean, I didn't do it in person, but we, we I interviewed him. Yes, at length. Yes. Um, I mean, that's, basically, I turned in, I was like, I want to make this its own thing. Like it was going to be part of a wider story, but I was like, this is too interesting. I, I really want this to stand, be a standalone. I mean, it's just too perfect to have the guy who got the first email from Satoshi. Like, it's like, <laughs> it's just amazing. So really what an honor to, uh, to get to talk yeah. to Adam. For, for, like, we're going to do a spaces next week, actually with Adam. And uh, it's going to be really fun. Cause there's Let's some other, f- like Aaron from Bitcoin magazine and Pete Rizzo. There's a few people who work for Bitcoin magazine who, who are, you know, excellent bitcoin historians um we had the i I had the privilege of having nick carter come down and talk at the bitcoin academy and i asked him to give a talk about why satoshi was a human rights activist and boy did he deliver it was great so um we'll have that out on the internet soon as well but uh, uh there's a there's a lot in that area that 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 i get intrigued by and yeah it's just the struggle for digital freedom is very important like right now this could not be more timely, and it's just
1: not on that many average folks' radar. I think is another key component. Like, if you're in this space, if you're down the rabbit hole, this is something you're thinking about all the time. But sure, for the for the average person, that this is just not in their
0: purview. Yeah, well, at least the money piece isn't. I mean, look, I think a lot of people like get the surveillance capitalism piece. Um, but look, it's it goes back to um, what is the solution? Like, so a lot of people saw the surveillance state beginning to be built in the late '80s mid eighties, late eighties, early nineties. Most people said, let's just convince the government to like be nicer to us. Like, like <laughs> that's literally what they, they were like, we should lobby for better restrictions. It's just like, okay. I mean, there's like a deep state. There's like an NSA. They're not gonna, you're not gonna lobby with them. You're not gonna negotiate with them. So the cypherpunks were like, not a good idea. Let's actually just like seize our rights with open source code. And, and I, I think that's the most profound thing. And that's obviously what Satoshi did. um, Th- there was never an opportunity where like any sort of group of Americans would be able to get together and say, Hey, we should have an open dialogue with our government about like the dollar and how it's screwed up like, yeah. and how the banking system is broken. So that would have been like,
2: like during the revolution at times, like people no, going to literally
0: the look at happened to the, what the Liberty reserve people or or, yeah. or whatever, or,
2: Oh, please, yeah, Mr. King, don't take Ross, our rights away.
0: Ross Albrecht or any of those people, anyone who's like sufficiently creating an economy that's like outside of the um, purview of the government. No, you're going to get arrested or worse. So it's like, that's why what happened with Satoshi was so profound. I mean, it was a historical moment when, I mean, never again. It's not like you, you guys, it's not like the three of us could be like, hey, we're working on this like new money thing. It's not like it would be worth nothing for a year and a half. These token projects immediately get captured by special interests now. And like, it's, just, it's not going to not, That's not going to change like moving forward. Like, so Satoshi really had like kind of one shot and they knocked it out of the freaking park, man. Knocked they did. It out they of did. The park. It's crazy. Alex,
2: I wanted to ask you, are you familiar with the book, The Fourth Turning?
0: Uh, familiar with the concept, but not, no, I've not read the book, no.
2: You don't really need to if you're familiar with the concept. It's, it's mm-hmm. basically the idea that f- every generation is 20 to 25 years long, and this whole right. cyclical idea of kind of a, an event, like a catalyst causing, you know, last one would have been World War II, before that the Civil War, where there's some horrible kind of upheaval That kind of resets everything and then we kind of grind our way back to that same upheaval happening again. Right. Have you ever thought about that in, in concert with what's going on in the world at large right now? How everything, all these institutions seem to be breaking down. We're having a lot of social unrest and I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on that concept in conjunction with everything we're seeing, including Bitcoin and this all kind of coalescing into what we're watching happen now.
0: Yeah. I mean, look, there's, there's, there's that. There's also another, um, God, what is it? Let me see if I can find it. Kondratiev was a Soviet economist who looked at 50 year trends in technology and capital that brought, that mapped broader social issues. And, you know, you can actually trace like the steam engine, the railway, uh, like chemistry and electrical, electrical engineering. Automobiles, petrochemicals, and then the information technology—like all these things—were basically fifty years apart. Yeah, and you know, then Bitcoin would be the next one. And it's like they all map social upheaval, social unrest. I mean, you can look at obviously the Fourth Turning theory. There's also uh, Ray Dalio has his like you know credit cycle, the the, yeah, the historical yeah. long-term credit term debt cycle. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. The long-term debt cycle. So there's there's a lot of ways you can you can look at it. I'm sure there's grains of truth in all these things. It's usually how it is. I think what's what's clear to me is two things. It's the stuff has always been screwed up. Okay, it's not like it's more screwed up now than it was before. I mean, anyone who's lived through the early 2000s and saw the invasion of Iraq, like I I mean, I continue to think that the gaslighting involved there was like crazier and crazier than anything I've seen since by far. Uh, So, so we'll see, but. What's, what's really clear is like, what's not like a theory or up in the air is the, is is how the money works. And that's what I've been focusing on. So aside from these like broad social trends, which I'm sure you could draw all kinds of interesting conclusions from, you know, the fact is that we were on a gold standard and then we were on a dollar standard backed by gold. And now we've been on the dollar standard, right. Or maybe you want to call it the treasury standard for 50 years. And, and the, these, these, these things have consequences and you can look at the, the, the react, you know, the outcome of, the, of these things, you know, narrowly, like, yes, they are. You have to look in context and concert with other stuff, but like, it's just very hard to escape this conclusion. And, and you can look at it from a Marxist lens, from a capitalist lens, from different lenses. You can, you can analyze this. What's really clear is when you look at stuff like the S&P versus the average income of workers equity and corporate power has gone on a rampage vis-a-vis the average worker Mm -hmm. since the 70s and again you can have a lot of different explanations for that great we should have all the explanations but when you just look at some of these stats like the chart of like the s p like the value of equities versus the average wage yeah it is jaw-dropping to look at some of these charts. I think that we're back to is. the
2: cantillon effect, on that is an easy explanation.
0: Yeah. And, you know, like it wasn't like it was weird because, like, it, some of these charts are relatively flat from like 30s through the 70s. I mean, that seems weird. There was like a massive world war and all kinds of other things. And <laughs> I mean, the US government was basically working, diffused the Fed and the Treasury in the 40s to like devalue the currency so that we could pay off our debt, like, all kinds of wild stuff happened, but for whatever reason, it was more or less like the relationship between like the working class and the, the owners of capital was like pretty, pretty static kind of in that time increment. And then God, once you hit the mid seventies, it's just like, and, and yeah. it's just unlike any, any, you go back hundreds. Some of these charts go back hundreds of years. There's nothing like this. I mean, yes, it got worse over time or depending on your perspective. Maybe it's better. I don't know if you're if you're not a communist. If you're like the other end of the spectrum, maybe you're like, oh, this is better. Whatever. The point is, like the the disparity, and I, I would think it. Would, I think it's bad. I, I think extreme inequality is bad, but uh, or at least as a symptom of a broken system, right? Yeah. Um. So, I mean, just just what has happened since the mid seventies is just just ahistorical and insane. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, there are other, okay, you can blame it on, okay, so you want to blame it on the tax regime. Okay, could do that too. But like, the, there's, there's, <laughs> we don't, we, you know, we can argue about the reasonings, but we know what the outcome is like, it's just absolutely astonishing. And the reality is, if you've been living in this country and you've been in the fields of defense or manufacturing, rather defense or technology or insurance or finance, you've done, you've, killed it since the mid 70s killed it and if and if you've been in manufacturing or any sort of sort of middle class kind of job it's it's, you've not killed it You've, you've either done okay or or you're struggling
2: yeah i think it all goes back to incentive structures like these politicians are incentivized to devalue money because that helps them bring pork back to their constituents and and on and on and like this this idea of printing money works really well for keeping yourself in office and kicking the can down the road, and it just is. Uh, it's an easy explanation for how this all happens. Like it's incentivized.
0: Look, the MMT people, you know, maybe they're right. Maybe that's a descriptive thing, not ideological. Maybe, maybe modern monetary theory is a description of how the U.S. government uses and creates money. Okay, I could get about. I could get on board with that. I can understand that um, perspective. So, if that's the case then then two things number one then taxes exist to destroy money so i'm, I'm very excited to see an american politician get up on, on television and say hey we're gonna have to raise taxes this year to destroy some of the money supply like that's gonna be very interesting yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly how's <laughs> right. this really, really? Gonna, yeah. you're gonna you're, that's how you're gonna do it okay we're um, all on board yeah. economy's running a little hot folks economy's running a little hot we're gonna need to gonna de- cool it off i need to destroy some of your money just back um, it off a touch here folks just, you need we need to take it out of your hands. Um, the reality is they won't need to do that because they'll have freaking CBDCs and they'll be able to auto-tax everybody to their heart's content. But the, the other part of it is like, okay, so in that case, there is no debt ceiling and you can go into as much debt as you want. But the, the <laughs> like the wall is going to be, in, they, they keep saying like, the limit is inflation. So, okay, well, we're starting to come up against the limit right now. Even the people who've been like, there is no inflation. Now they're saying, Whoa, there is inflation, right? So, and all of a sudden, it went from like, oh, it's two percent, it's three percent. Oh, now it's six. Oh, okay. Well, that was that's quite a jump.
2: Ooh, um, we're going to have to change the way we measure this again. And
0: did yeah. Two to the difference between two and six is massive. I mean, just mm-hmm. simply, and just 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 considering a- any any framework. But I don't think it's going to end at six, right? And we all know that inflation and in, many things that are important to us is way higher than that, whether it be real estate or education or healthcare or whatever. I mean, I was looking at a, a medical bill from a family member recent, like somewhat recently. and I'm like, holy fuck. Like how, how is this even anywhere close? Like, there's just no way that a middle-class person could ever afford this important, but relatively minor surgery. It was just like, it was just, yeah,
1: it's not happening. I,
0: the 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 cost is so inflated for a variety of reasons. Like, really, these, these the cost of these procedures should be like twelve hundred dollars or something, and that would still be like a challenge to pay off. But forty thousand dollars to to have a procedure done, like that's just that's like all of somebody's nest day, if you know what I mean. For a lot of people, or or yeah. you know, it's crippling. Not not it's crippling. Yeah. So you want to liberate yourself from this broken system. We have, you can enter into Bitcoin. There's a lot of cool stuff. Bitcoin does. We could go on and on about mining, about home mining, about how home mining can liberate you and turn electricity into freedom money. We could talk a lot about what that's going to do to the developing world. We could talk a lot about what's happening in sanctioned countries and all these other places. But at the end of the day, it's like, this is pretty straightforward. You want to work on your stack now for your family and your family's future. So that in 10 or 20 years, you, you, you're able to like tread water with what's happening like in the macro environment around you. And there's nothing more valuable than teaching somebody about Bitcoin. I really think that that's like the truth. So at least right now in the adoption cycle. Amen. So keep doing what you're doing and I'll keep doing what I'm doing and we'll, we'll hopefully we'll change some minds and help people onboard into this new, new economy.
1: Alex, for our listenership, as we conclude here, if there's somebody that's interacted with you a lot and has this growing conviction that they want B- Bitcoin to just be bigger than their bubble and they want to get connected with HRF or your work or people around the world, how can how would you recommend somebody plug in to that ecosystem and, and start making a difference for Bitcoin internationally and for, for those that need it most?
0: It's a great question. Um, I mean, look, I would say that you can Go to my author page on Bitcoin Magazine and look at some of the work I've been doing. I'm also creating, like, a working on it. It's a work in progress, but I have, like, an um, alexgladstein.com kind of site that I'm working on to put all my writings on. Uh, Hopefully those can inspire. Um, You can come to the, I mean, the main way is to come to the events that we do. Like the Oslo, if you want to plug in, you got to come to an event. So the Oslo Freedom Forum is a global event series. Next one's in Norway in May. Uh, These are life-changing events where you're going to meet a lot of amazing people, including, including including some some good bitcoiners, but but a lot of people who care about freedom around the world. I, I I think the little Bitcoin book is still useful. Came out with it a couple years ago with some other bitcoiners from around the world. We wrote that. Hopefully, this book I'm working on now will be more of a deep dive. If you have someone who's interested in politics and history and they want to learn more about the impact of Bitcoin happening around the world, like hopefully that'll be good to give them. Um, we'll see. We'll see how long that'll take to get out, but hopefully not too long. But yeah, uh, you can always follow me on Twitter at Gladstein. I try to share whatever I think is interesting or important um, in the Bitcoin world. And uh, yeah, we'll we'll certainly be in touch. I appreciate you guys having me on. Thanks so much for your
1: time, Alex. Enjoyed every minute of it. Do us a favor. Please tell your two identical triplets that we also thank them (laughs) for their uh, contributions to Bitcoin.
0: Yeah, it's like uh, in the Prestige or whatever. Exactly, I, <laughs> I
1: was thinking about Christian Bale or whatever in the Prestige.
0: I will, I will, I will let them know that they are uh, their efforts are. You either um, have
1: those twins or you figured out cloning. I don't know which one it is, but one of them. Thanks. Have a great rest of your day. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening into the show. If you enjoyed this discussion, be sure to subscribe on whatever app you're using for podcasts. And if you have an extra minute, go ahead and leave us a review. You can also follow us on Twitter. We're at Blue underscore Collar BTC. We invite questions, comments, and inquiries of any kind. And our email is bluecollarbitcoinpodcast at gmail.com. We look forward to you joining us next time on the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast.